What do you think? Do you guys know the chant by now, or do you need to see the words? Words? Try without the words. Good way to learn it, right? In order that all sentient beings may attain brotherhood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain brotherhood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain brotherhood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues and many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in a clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Sri, please accomplish this. Derek, we're getting a lot of audio feedback from you. And Thank you, Emily. Yeah. Might be original sound is on, possibly. Well, I was in my headset Oh, okay. How's that? Is that it? Yes, that sounds good. Good. Good evening. So let's have a moment of silence where we uh, honor the the manifestations of two great bodhisattvas that passed away recently. Dojip Chen Rimshe, the holder of the uh, lineage and tradition of Jigme Lingpa. The fourth Dojip Chen Tin. Uh, Oh, I can't remember his full name, but uh, he passed away on uh, Saturday, as well as uh, you probably have heard of Thich Nhat Hanh passed away. Okay. So tonight we dive, continue our dive into the last text in this wonderful book, Luminous Heart, called The uh, Distinction Between uh, Consciousness and Wisdom. The commentary by Jamgan Control, Lojo Tai, Limitless Intellect. Lojo is intellect, Tai is limitless, without bounds commentary and the treatise on the distinction between consciousness and wisdom and I believe we're on page 64 does that correspond to anyone else's recollections beliefs explaining the root of mistakenness did we do part of that already you said 64 64 yeah 64,000 oh sorry 264 thank you <laughs> is that better that makes sense good thank you very much for chiming in there wrong ideas so the the root of mistakenness and non-mistakenness so the root of samsara and nirvana is door number one the mind door number two the mind door number three my mind my mind so this is three parts. The first is the wrong idea of others about this who don't understand that the root of everything is the mind. People think that all sentient beings in the three realms, 
arise either from themselves, from something else or other, from both or without a cause. These are the uh, standard four options of what something might arise from. Self, other, both, neither. The famous tetralemma of Nagarjuna. The four options that are meant to include all possibilities and from which you then can derive a definitive, uh, valid understanding or cognition of a topic. So in this case, we're talking about production, the true production of um, all things or all beings, and uh, others, some uh, others meaning uh, non-Buddhists always say a creator such as Cha Ishwara, Brahma or Vishnu, outer particles or a real hidden substance creates myself in the world. Now we've we've been through most of what this text has we've been through in other texts, unfortunately, at this point. It does present it very well and nicely, but in order to get through it, I'm going to sort of skim parts of it. Now this part we didn't see before. This has a thorough value, uh, analysis of these four options of true production by virtue of which one then uh, ideally comes to a, a firm conclusion that uh, things are not truly produced. So, um, all, sentient, all these sentient beings who circle in the three realms of desire, form, and formlessness consist of consciousness and have the nature of being mistaken. At least we're all the same in that way. As for the ways to explain from which causes they arise, childish beings who do not adhere to a philosophical system have no idea no ideas about this at all because they do not know how to examine and analyze. So people that don't think about it at all. The Tirtikas, um, who adhere to philosophical systems, have wrong ideas about causes and conditions. Tirtikas being a general term for non-Buddhist uh, views. Among Buddhists, the Shravakas realize just a fraction of actual reality, just as it is, but do not realize the ways in which appearances are mind. Mind is emptiness, and emptiness arises as dependent origination. The four stages of uh, the understanding of the nature of reality through Vipassana, that uh, is in the absolute bodhicitta slogans, to some extent, of uh, Tisha, and in the four pointing out transmissions of the Mahamudra system. Therefore, they proclaim a great deal of superimposition and denial. As for the Tirtikas, the Samkhas, Samkhya, so he goes through the different schools of the Tirtikas, which we've seen before, and uh, they're basically examples of those who believe that things arise from themselves. And uh, the followers of Ishwara, I believe that things arise from something other than themselves, from a godhead or some sort of godlike being. Whereas the Samkhyas believe that all, uh, the first ones there, that all phenomena have, uh, um, have their, the seeds of themselves before they are produced in the basic substance of the universe. That basic substance includes all phenomena, so things arise from themselves. 
And then we have the followers of Vishnu and others maintain that outer and inner entities arise from both the self, which is endowed with five characteristics, and the power of a creator, who is something other. So the combination option, and then the lokotayas, lokayatas rather, assert the entire world and its inhabitants arise without any cause, aimlessly, causelessly, just haphazardly. They came about, all these were created by nobody. They came about through their very nature, the last line of the quote. From among all the proponents of philosophical systems, these latter are the worst because they completely deny even the ways in which the world directly appears. You know, we see things arising in a seeming aspect of cause and condition. As for those who assert a creator in Tibet, the followers of Bun assert that everything good and bad in the world which consists of the outer container and its contents we went through this we did go through this i'm having like deja vu so we went to 268 that's it right i have my little page marker on 265 265 yeah that you you started and you just I don't know. Ah, uh, right. I went right through there. Yeah, I went to, and then like, I said the first of four philosophical systems, and we stopped there. Yeah, right. the last, last notes that I had written, not that that means anything, had to do with. Oh, you muted. You just muted. Yeah, yeah but I In got fact, that. I think we got just to that point, at least just to this point. Okay. So yeah. the first among the four Buddhist philosophical schools are those of the Shravakas, who are Vaibhashikas, which means particularists. They assert that entities which appear as outer objects are unreal. The conglomeration of particles that uh, appear as tables and chairs and so forth are un unreal or not genuine, but the substantial partless particles which make them up and which are not the sphere of the sense faculties. They're, they're not perceptible through our senses, but they are ultimately real atoms, i.e. atomists. The partless moments of inner consciousness are said to be mental particles. So they view that there's two, two types of phenomena in the world, matter and mind. The former of these two particles cannot be destroyed by other entities while mental particles cannot be further broken down by mental analysis, so they're ultimate. Therefore, both substantial and mental particles are permanent, substantial being material, which, uh, let's see, once such particles come together, conglomerated particles are established, which are the entities of seeming reality being the objects of the sense consciousness as having the characteristics of impermanence. Whatever comes together falls apart. The individual particles of outer objects, i.e. form, sound, smells, tastes, tangible objects, and phenomena are asserted to be real. However, if through prajna, substantial particles are divided into six or ten sides, and mental particles are split up into the three times, none of them are established and are therefore untenable. So the whole idea of there being a partless particle or moment is not tenable because we know that everything has a beginning, a middle, and an end, or a uh, left side, a right side, and so forth. Uh, furthermore, if there are no parts, coarse entities cannot be built up by those particles either. So if there are no uh, 
When you have parlous particles, there's no conglomerated real entities. Shravakas or Sautrantikas say, since manifest outer objects such as forms are seeming reality, they do not appear directly to consciousness. So the Sautrantikas say, well, this idea of parlous particles of the Vaibhashikas is not uh, viable, and so all outer objects are not genuine. Uh, but uh, the appearance of something in the in consciousness is genuine. It's just not the appearance of some outer partless particles. Rather, when uh, so uh, let's see, since manifest outer object objects such as forms are seeming reality, they do not appear directly to consciousness. Rather, when object and sense faculty meet, what appears is something like an image drawn in the ashes of incense. <laughs> Sometimes they say it's like the image of an object when you burn a cloth on top of that object. Outer objects, specifically characterized objects that cast their aspects towards consciousness, exist as real, hidden, or concealed substances. So we can't, all outer phenomena are hidden from us, concealed from us, because we can't get at them with our consciousness. Because, uh, their matter and our consciousness is mind and they don't directly touch and the outer phenomena don't exist as such because they're infinitely divisible so they have no true genuine reality so whatever it is we see out there is hidden from us through that myself the inner person and the um, and the realms or objective phenomena of the outer world are created so uh, based on some um, rip, uh, some some manifestation in my inner consciousness of uh, supposed outer hidden concealed objects, I create the three realms. We all do that too is un untenable. If the hidden object appears to consciousness, this constant this contradicts its being hidden. So this is uh, Rongjung Dorje critiquing. This, the view of the Sautrantikas, saying that they've just sort of kicked the can down the road instead of the uh, the uh, having disproved the existence of outer objects, they then claim that there's some uh, replication of outer objects in the inner world of consciousness, but how can that be if there are no outer objects? If the hidden object appears to consciousness, this contradicts its being hidden. <laughs> So if somehow some image arises in consciousness, where'd that come from? And if it does not so appear, it would not be able to cast its aspect. So their whole way of uh, presenting reality does not hold water, although it's a, it's a very helpful way of understanding how cognition occurs. How this was taught by the victor, uh, victor himself, the Buddha, the soul, all-knowing one, taught sentient beings from his realization that these three realms are merely mind. They neither arise from themselves nor from something other, both nor without a cause phenomenon, nothing but dependent origination. While this very dependent origination is empty of a nature of its own, free from being one or different, devoid of being real or delusive, and just like illusions, the moon and water, and so on. So we've been through this whole thing before, uh, that everything is mind. 
the perfect Buddha is liberated from the two obscurations of uh, klesha and cognitions, including their latent tendencies, and therefore directly knows the suchness of all noble objects, as well as their entire variety, which are the two types of omniscience, or knowledge or wisdom of a Buddha. This sole one, the Buddha, who is unrivaled in the world, taught that these three realms are merely the embodiment of the imagining mind that is impaired by ignorance, but that they are not established ultimately. The Dasa, Dasha Bhumaka Sutra, the Sutra of the Ten Bhumis says, O child, children of the victors, these three realms are merely my, are mere mind. And the Lankavatara, just as forms in a mirror appear, they but do not exist in the mirror of latent tendencies. Childish beings see two aspects of mind, i.e. inside and outside, or apprehended and apprehended. Through not knowing that they are appearances of mind, two kinds of concepts arise. I'm sorry, conception arise. Through conceptions connected to latent tendencies, great variety springs from the mind. To, to human beings, external things appear. They are merely the minds of worldly beings. And also in the mantra system, outside of this jewel-like mind, there are no Buddhas and no sentient beings. They are not the slightest outer reference things to which terms refer on which consciousness could dwell. Therefore, these entities do not arise from themselves, as in the assertion of the Tirtikas. If something is already um, established as itself, there is no need for, for it to rise again. So, arising from itself doesn't make sense, nor do entities arise from something other. If something other has to depend on self, since there is no self as the basis on which that other could depend, on whose other would it be justified? <laughs> That's a confusing way of saying uh, this. The use of the word self means, uh, I think, refers to the lack of, uh, or the presumption of, or lack of entityness. Uh, um, contained in the idea of partless particles, or some sort of essence that makes up matter, or some sort of <clears throat> um, indestructible moment of consciousness. However, if something were produced by something other than the sun, would absurdly have to produce dark darkness. <laughs> Interesting example of um, how, how some things are produced by absences. And a, uh, a piece of felt, a vase, and so on, but sh such things are imp impossible. I have no idea what this piece of felt producing a vase is, but the idea of the sun producing darkness, darkness has to have a cause, and, and the only thing that's other than darkness is light. So then you would say that light produces darkness, which makes totally no sense. Anyway, the felt and the vase were just like taking two completely unconnected things and different saying, types of objects. Yeah, it's the idea that anything could cause anything. Right. Thank you very much. Nor entities produced from both the just dimensioned possibilities together. There will just be the added faults of these previous possibilities. You know, if you, if, you, if you propose two ways that something might have come about and both are wrong, you can't say, well, from both of those, it doesn't add any benefit anyway. Also, it is untenable for some simultaneously existing self and other, like the right, left and right horns of a bull, to serve as mutual causes and conditions. Um, 
nor is arising without a cause justified as long as everybody's direct sense perceptions see that a sprout arises from a seed, and so on. Interesting that he uses a, an example of production as a way of refuting uh, production happening from nothing. So, um, what is that production of a seed? How is that coming about? You may wonder, well, how is it then? Ultimately, the phenomena contained in the samsara and nirvana are emptiness beyond all extremes of reference points within that emptiness as seeming appearances. They are um, the dependent origination of mutual causes and results. This very dependent origination is empty of any real entity established by a nature of its own. The dependent origination's own nature consists of the appearances of the duality of apprehended and apprehended, just like the reflection of the moon and water. So there's a there's a, a, a constant flux of dependent origination of non-separate, non-ontologically um, existent entities. Nowhere along the chain of dependent origination, nowhere physically, in a physical location or temporally, does that flux of dependent origination consist of anything real at any one point. Um, this very dependent origination is empty of any real entity established by nature of its own. <clears throat> dependent origination's own nature consists of the appearances of the duality of apprehender and apprehended. Um, just like the reflection of the moon and water. So these are, uh, mistakenness is, de is dependently originated as well. These appearances are seeming reality, that is the phenomena that bear the nature of emptiness. These very uh, mere appearances are naturally free from all reference points and their own essence abides its emptiness. This is the nature of phenomena, ultimate reality. So going through the options, then uh, at the same time recognizing that it looks like appearances happen with some semblance of order, we then experience the uh, falling apart of the conceptual fabric or the conceptual structure of our projection of there being something that is involved in our experience and what we experience. Can, can I ask a little question okay. um, in this entitylessness? The, the word origination in the term dependent origination, which is obviously the big core of all of this, does suggest arising or being of some kind. And I'm wondering, is that is that like in terms of translation, is the Tibetan or Sanskrit also have an, a quality of that idea of origination in it, or is is it different than that? Do you know what I mean? Because we're saying there's really no entity in all this, and yet the word origination does make it sound like something's originating. I never... Yeah, I, th I think grammatically they all have the the implication of there being an agent, and, and there's no way of getting around that. I think the origin terms for origination, pratitya samudpada, um, as well as uh, the Tibetan uh, tendril, all have have an implied agent. So I, I think it's just a matter of there being no other language to to use. Well, like 
like, I mean, like, for example, you used the word flux, which is kind of our fallback, I think, in, in English to try to try to convey the idea of uh, a mushier, non-thing type of situation. And I just wondered if that existed in any of the other languages or original original language of this stuff. They don't have yeah. a, a flux. Well, kind of suchness, you know, mm. they, they use suchness in the way that I've used flux, although... The way I used flux has a nuance. You know, I said there's a flux of suchness, basically. Right. Which, right. which so basically the answer to your question is I don't think so. You know, right. I, I think they just say suchness. But it's, we should look into, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's just one of those, like, nagging things that the language of duality pervades even when we're talking about non-duality. So it's just so, sort of... Uh, curious that we haven't come up with anything yet in 2,500 years. Nagging, constant nagging for 2,500 years. Imagine that. (laughs) It's torture. Jhana Garbas, the uh, distinction between the two truths, Satya, Tvaya, Vibhaga, just as these very appearances as they appear are the seeming, the other is its counterpart that which doesn't appear. The Vajranama Samuchaya Tantra says, the seeming is dualistic appearances. All dualistic appearances are the seeming. It's realities like a reflection of the moon and water, ultimate realities free from all characteristics. And it's locus. Mm. Consists of the 18 emptinesses. Its place is emptiness. You may wonder, is the seeming appearance of duality the same as or different from its nature? The ultimate nature, reality that is emptiness. They are not the same. Seeming reality is established as mistaken appearance, but not ultimately. Whereas ultimate reality is established as the nature of phenomena, but not as seeming reality. This is just as in the example of the appearance of the moon and water not being established as the actual moon. And the actual moon not being established as a reflection of the moon and water. The Stamdin or Mochina Sutra states four flaws. If the two realities were the same, such as that those who um, see seeming reality would see ultimate reality too, as one of the four flaws. The two realities are also not different. So they, they always go through this scheme of like, so we have these two sort of levels or aspects of reality. Are they, are they different or are they the same? They're also not different. For example, when a rope is mistaken for a snake, what is actually there is a rope, but there is no snake. So how can they be different? (laughs) However, in the mistaken appearance, both what exists and what does not exist come together on the same basis, therefore not being different. Likewise, since whatever appears as seeming reality is inseparable from the ultimate emptiness, they are not established as being different. Uh, the Samdhina Moshe says, states four flaws. If the two realities were different, such as that ultimate reality would not be the nature of seeming reality. If they were actually different, then you could say all phenomena are empty. Because they're different things. Therefore, the two realities are free from being one or different, and abide as the inseparability, the oneness of appearance and emptiness. Samdhina Moshe again says, the defining characteristic of the conditioned realms and the ultimate is their defining characteristic of freedom from being one or many. Those who think of them in terms of oneness and difference have not mentally engaged in them in a proper way. You need to go back, do your homework. To 
two realities are also not delusive in the sense of being neither the same nor different. <laughs> For from the viewpoint of mistaken, the semen is the undeceiving display of causes and results, while the ultimate is real as the basic nature. So one may just throw up one's hands and say, what the fuck are you talking about then? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so one may just conclude, well, then both realities are real. However, though the semen appears, it is empty, and in that it is not established as any nature, while the ultimate is beyond the sphere of mind. Therefore, they are devoid of any presentations of them being really established and unable to be made into a thesis that one could defend in any way. The two realities are simple, similar to the examples of illusions, which are not real as the entities of horses and cows, but still may appear as such standard illusions, horses and cows, the words, and so on, in line 21 of New York, include mirages, echoes, optical illusions, reflections, rainbows, clouds, and lightning, all of which are similar in appearing while not existing. In the Garjana's Madhyamaka text called the uh, Aspiration for Bodhicitta, he declares, starting with ignorance up through aging and death, the twelve links of what originates in dependence I hold to be like dreams and illusions. Naropa's summary of the view says, as for this non-frenchial self-awareness, it appears while being empty and is empty while appearing. Therefore, it is the inseparability of appearing and being empty just as a reflection of the moon and water. Therefore the blessed one realizing that all three realms are like this taught sentient beings the means for realizing this principle. So the objective seems to be to, to generate a state of mind in which one is alert and, and sort of paying attention to what one is experiencing without forming any concepts about it. Which I think is the objective of meditation practice. I'm not sure though. But I have a hunch. The manner of this being taught through Rongzong Dorje's own realization from where arises the root of all of this mistakenness and this unmistakenness. Just as recognizing one's own form due to a mirror and fire due to smoke, through teaching the principle of dependent origination, I will clearly express this realization here. Mistakenness, samsara, is the aspect of consciousness, and unmistakenness, nirvana, is the aspect of wisdom. From where arises the root of both, and how does it arise? That Rangjun Dorje himself realizes this, and is able to teach it to others. I'm sorry, that he realizes it and has able to teach it to others has its basis in the profound dependent origination of causes and conditions. For example, due to a clear mirror free from corrosion, the reflected form of one's own face is realized to be beautiful or ugly. Likewise, through the development of the prajna of study, <laughs> that was a funny example, huh? uh, study and reflecting, which is based on the stainless sutras, tantras, treatises, and instructions of the guru, which are the four types of treatises or texts. The basic nature of the two realities is understood, just as the existence of fire is inferred due to the rising of smoke. The wisdom of the, of the change of state is pointed out due to developing the clear realization of meditation in the mind stream. In brief, all phenomena of samsara and nirvana are primordially beyond all extremes of reference points. Yet, the principle of dependent origination appears as anything whatsoever. Through having relied on his profound innate prajna as well as the one he cultivated during his present life, 
Gongjun Dorje realized this very principle just as it is in an unerring way and will clearly express this realization in this treatise here, not hiding anything. <laughs> and with a loving heart for his dedicated, devoted followers, establishing that appearances are mind. It says four parts, establishing the dependent origination of the five operating consciousnesses and establishing it as mind. The consciousness of the five sense gates appropriate. Appropriate is a cognitive uh, is a way of describing cognitive uh, ascertainment or uh, engagement. Appropriate form, sound, smell, taste, and tangible objects or reject them, which produces the, the afflictions. The two uh, affli uh, ways of relating to sense objects of appropriation or rejection. When those with progeny examine carefully what these objects are, they are not established as something external such as particles that is other than the cognizing consciousness. So if, if phenomena can be broken down, uh, if matter can be broken down infinitely such that we can't find any substance to it, then in what way can we say that there's anything external that's perceived by consciousness? Out of the causal condition, the Ali consciousness, together with the afflicted mind, the dominant conditions, the five gates of the ear, eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body sense faculties, which serve as the dominant condition of, of sense cognition, um, together with the consciousnesses connected with them, the latter being the immediate mind, so the immediate mind will get to meet with their object conditions, the five respective objects of form, sound, smell, taste, and tangible objects. So you have this like this scheme of the of the conditions. The causal condition is the Alia consciousness, the dominant condition is the sense faculty, the object condition is the sense object, and the immediately preceding condition is the immediate mind, which he didn't really separately identify, but uh, based on the context, due to these conditions coming together, mentally appropriating desirable and attractive objects, such as what is beautiful to the eye or pleasant to hear, produces the affliction of desire, and rejecting undesirable, repugnant things produces aversion, not realizing the nature of what is experienced as neutral and indifferent, produces ignorance. Not realizing the nature of what is experienced as neutral. I'm not sure that's 100% correct. Something like not realizing the nature of what is experienced or of what is experienced produces the sense of neutral and indifferent response, which is ignorance. Do this karma is accumulated? So the three root poisons. If you ask how we come to take up roaming about in samsara, and roaming charges do apply, through that, this happens by clinging to mistaken appearances as being real. You may wonder from what causes and conditions such appearances of the five apprehended objects are arising. When those with the eye progeny, which comes from study reflection meditation, examine carefully, it is nothing but the consciousnesses of the five gates which arise from the creative potential of the cognizing mind that arises the respective five objects. So the mind arises as the apprehender and the apprehended. 
and they are not established as the slightest external causes and conditions that are other than the consciousness appearing as objects such as the particles of hidden outer objects asserted by Shravakas or Vibhashakas or Sautrantakas or any self-reagent asserted by the Tirtakas. So if the whole way of existing of outer objects is proved to be false, then, then when the mind... Uh, cognizes what appears to be external, it's just uh, cognizing itself. There's no other option. Thus, Arya Deva's Jnana Sara Samuchai Compendium of the Ocean of Wisdom says something that has parts does not exist, any minute particles do not exist either. What seems to appear distinctly is actually unobservable. What seems to appear distinctly is actually unobservable. You can't actually observe something that exists from its own side and thus experiences are like a dream life is but a dream dispelling wrong ideas that this is not mine if the substances of objects were other than consciousness they would not have the same nature as consciousness also from cognizance that cannot be pinpointed an obstructed material substance does not arise Because of that, they have no causal connection. If this is accepted, it is untenable that objects appear to consciousness since they have no connection. This idea that matter and mind are different, and how could they ever, how could the, they ever meet? Never the twain shall meet. If the substance of outer objects such as form were to exist as real reference other than consciousness such as the eye consciousness, it would follow that consciousness and object do not have either a connection of the same nature or a causal connection. Cognizance cannot be pinpointed through the interaction between consciousness and an object and it cannot be obstructed due to not being established as a tangible form from such cognizance material substance which appears to the contrary as what can be pinpointed and obstructed does not arise since it's contradictory in terms of a substance for a result that is an entity arise from a cause that is not an entity. <laughs> a very convoluted way of saying what I said earlier, I think. Because of that argument, it needs to be accepted that consciousness and object have no causal connection. Sort of interesting argument. Uh, you know, why, why can't matter and mind communicate? What's the big deal? Just because they're different substances. Is, has, was that ever like debated in depth? Because it seems like it's always taken as just a fact. Yeah, I've never seen anybody dispute it. You know, but the earlier schools, it's like, yeah, there's matter and there's mind, and mind cognizes matter, and that's the way the world works. So to use that as a reason is a little bit. That's always been a difficult one. It's a, and is it like somebody somewhere along the way? as these tenant concepts evolved, somewhere along the way somebody made this decision that that can't happen? Well, yeah, we'll have to look into this. Let's sidebar that. That, that is an interesting question and, and topic. I, I think Emily... The process uh, of cognization, you, you separated the two. They never... Right, because as soon as you start cognizing, going through... Eight consciousness, five skandhas, whatever. There's no connection there anymore. It's gone. Like it's, I mean, cognizance. Only, okay. Buddha, only Buddha has the connection, right? No, no, no. We'll, we'll sidebar this. We'll ask Emily to look into this, to research this for us, okay? 
You got Emily, it. Our, our uh, resident scholar. <laughs> um, let's see. Because of this argument, or that argument, rather, this or that argument, it's all same. It needs to be accepted that consciousness is an object of no causal connection. If this is accepted by realists, then it would follow that objects such as form do not appear at all. For it is in untenable that they appear to consciousness such as the eye, since these two have no connection. They could be introduced, but they have no connection. In general, whatever appears as such seemingly outer objects is necessarily something that is connected either in terms of identity or causality. Okay, so either identity or causality is the only basis for connection in this system. And uh, identity is ruled out in this case, and causality is what he's gone about disproving, I guess. Because uh, uh, material objects that have no substance can't act as a cause. On the reverse, which, well... We'll come back to it. On the reverse side, whatever does not have either connection does not appear. As such, objects, just as in the examples of illusory appearance in a dream, invisible entities, or the eye consciousness not hearing sound and the tongue not eating forms, it is because of this point that Naroba's summary of the views, which is translated, by the way, in a book by Trongarimshe, uh, uh, comments on it. All these appearing and possible phenomena do not exist apart from self-aware mind, since they are appearing and lucid just for the experience of self-awareness. Um, if they were not mind, it would follow that they do not appear, since there is no connection. In this way, the seeming is determined. Seeming, the, re the re world of reality, relative world. What, what's the name of that? Uh, it's Wisdom of Naropa. Oh, okay. I've been reading the Tilopus Wisdom one, but I'll have to check out the Naropa one. I'm pretty sure it has that in it. Presenting evidence that is uh, that another agent does not exist. No more secret. No other secret agents. Hence, these appearances, however they may manifest, do not exist as objects that are other than consciousness. Everything is mine. They're arising from it is like an experience of one's own awareness, whether partless particles or a plateau, which is a huge conglomeration of partless particles, I think. Appearances are mine. The purport of this is to realize that Brahma and such are not creating agents since nothing is established as something external to or other than the mind. Hence, due to the arguments just explained, these outer appearances, however they may manifest, do not exist as really established objects that are other than inner consciousness. As for the certainty about this, the awareness that discriminates, for example, an Utpala flower, which is a blue, very uh, beautiful flower that blooms only once in a blue moon, as the object of one's own thoughts arises from the mind with its latent tendencies to which one has been habituated since beginningless time. So it's a, an example of an object which is extremely rare. And, you know, this idea that, well, if everything that we experience is our mind, how do we come up with objects that we've never experienced before? How do they, like, come about? Um, that awareness manifests as a vivid experience within one's mind. However, something like a vase appearing within the mind of someone else which lacks any connection to one's own mind does not appear to one's own mind. 
since it is like that, however appearances manifest, whether as subtle particles or vast plateaus, such as the Tibetan plateau, they are just one's own mind, appearing as if it were an object. Through the purport of these arguments and reasoning, since there is no real entity that is established as something external to or other than mind, it is realized that Brahma and such Ishwara, Vishnu, a self, many particles or hidden objects are not established as creating agents, all of them being just mere appearances of mind, but not involving any real entities. And the extensive quote repeats the same, so I'll skip it and go to page 274. But by the way, this reminds me that this was a, a homework assignment many months ago, many, many months ago, long ago, when we began in this course of like, actually trying to experience your world as if everything was mind. And now we can take away the as if part because we now know definitively that everything is mind, right? So try to experience your world that way and see what happens or continue to do that. So interdependence in terms of the sixth consciousness, i.e., Mentation. So this term mentation is being used to, as an uh, alternate translation for the sixth consciousness. As for the connection between mind and matter, mentation and phenomena, just like in an experience in a dream, there's nothing but one's clinging to focusing on that, whereas real entities do not exist. You may wonder how the connection between mentation, the sixth co collection of consciousness, and uh, they, it's interesting they use the term collection of consciousness, the skanda, skanda being a collection. So none of these exist as like, there's no, not like one particle, but all um, the skandas are collections of particles, I guess, or moments. You may wonder how the connection between mentation, the sixth collection of consciousness, and the phenomena which appears its objects is asserted in a dream while being overcome by sleep. Latent tendencies of what you think and feel during the day become unmistaken experiences of sight and hearing as if they were directly perceived sense objects. Just like that, through the earlier latent tendencies of mind that have arisen as the thought of a vase, have ceased to appear as this vase, the next thoughts further prolong focusing on that prior image of a vase. <laughs> They're like obsessed with vases. Such is nothing but clinging to apprehended phenomena as real thinking from the perspective of what's called no examination. Is this triad of, uh, of uh, examination or uh, um, investigation which starts with no examination, is just thinking things exist as they appear, and then there's some slight examination is um, thinking that things are made up of subtle particles or that they're hidden, obscured objects that cast their aspects on consciousness, as in the Vaibhashika-Satrantika schools, respectively. And then there's complete investigation or examination which understands the emptiness of all phenomena. Uh, let's see. This is a vase, whereas separately, whereas separate really established entities um, that are phenomena other than mind do not exist. 
Oh, let's see. So there, there is such, such as nothing but clinging to apprehended phenomena. It's real thinking from the perspective of no examination. This is a vase, whereas separate really established entities that are phenomena other than mind do not exist. The reason for this is as follows. In a dream, with not even a tiny particle being established, the various things that appear in it are appearances of utter non-existence. Likewise, the latent tendencies of a vase, its characteristics, and the arising of thoughts about its being real have the nature of possessing many different moments. And that mind that is now everything, since there's nothing external to it and everything is, is mind, that mind itself is unborn. Things are just getting shakier and shakier here. Uh, thus, this consciousness in its six collections arises, the appearance of reference and sentient beings, clinging to identity, cognizance, and whatever forms of appearances. What are they if not produced by something other? They're not produced by themselves either, nor are they produced by both or neither of the two, you may wonder now. Granted, external objects are not really established, but is inner consciousness really established or not? It is not. Just as what is called the mountain over there depends on the mountain here, i.e. dependence. Um, consciousness depends on an object to be known by it. Consciousness is defined as the cognization, cognization, as Christopher called it, cognization of an object. Um, therefore, if the apprehended object does not exist, if we're, if we're cognizing something that doesn't exist, then we're not really cognizing. It is established that the apprehending consciousness does not exist either. As presented in the Abhisamaya Alamkara, if apprehended reference do not exist like that, meaning in, uh, truly, can these two be asserted as the apprehenders of anything? Can these two consciousnesses, thus their characteristic is the emptiness of a nature of an apprehender? And uh, Nagarjuna's uh, Lokatita Stava is praise of the praise of the loka, of the place. I don't know. Without being cognized, there's nothing cognizable, but consciousness does not exist without that. If there's no cogniz nothing to cognize, then consciousness does not exist. Thus, because of that, for this consciousness in its six collections, consciousness itself appears as reference, that is, external objects that consist of forms and so on. It also appears as sentient beings, this consciousness, consisting of the supports for perceiving those objects, such as the eye sense faculty. It further appears as clinging to identity, the apprehending consciousness, and cognizance of objects, the mental factors. So these are the various aspects or uh, manifestations of consciousness that consciousness appears as. Through that, mind is engaged in adopting and rejecting by believing in all these different appearances. In brief, all these phenomena that arises, whatever forms of appearances are merely mind, but you may still wonder whether they are not produced by some other cause. They are not produced by themselves because primordially something that cannot be called real is not established or produced. Nor are they produced by both because both a self and something other do not exist. For something other is not tenable. Given that a self does not exist, there can be no real other. Nor are they produced without a cause, which would be from neither themselves nor something other. And 
and the Prajnamula Madhyamaka Karika, which is Nagarjuna's root um, verses on the verses on the root of uh, wisdom of Madhyamaka, the middle way, not from themselves, not from something other, not from both, not without a cause at any time and any place. All entities lack arising. Now calling in uh, uh, my supporting evidence, scriptural evidence. Therefore, according to the words of the victor, everything in samsara and nirvana is merely mind. For the reasons explained above, the words of the victor say in infinite ways, infinite, in, uh, <clears throat> in the sutra collections of the Mahayana in general and the Buddha Avatamsaka Sutra in particular, which is the Flower Garland Sutra, huge, probably the longest sutra. Mind is like a painter. The skandhas are created by the mind. All the many worldly realms there are are painted by the mind. Every phenomenon samsara is the mistaken mind's own form, and every phenomenon nirvana is the appearance of the basic state. Mind free from the stains of apprehended and apprehended, or therefore all sutras, tantras, and treatises, which is a translation of the Sanskrit shastras, say that phenomena are merely mind. As the great Brahma, i.e. Saraha, states in his treasury of uh, Dohas, called uh, for the people called the people Doha, mind is such alone as the seed of everything. I pay homage to that mind, which is like a wish-fulfilling jewel, granting anyone their desired results in existence and samsara. He's paying homage to mind, which is unborn, by the way. As for the samsara there. Uh, in existence, I'm sorry. Say again. You, I thought you read it in existence and samsara, which is oh, I probably did. In in existence, samsara and nirvana. As for the gradual stages of realizing this actuality during the phases of the path, which is probably the most interesting part of the thing that so far tonight. Um, First, independence on observing objects is mere cognizance. So actually practicing observing cognizance. Practice practice experiencing objects as being the projection of mind. Not like not like doing it, not like uh, viewing this as like a philosophical conclusion or view that one might ponder and take up, but actually doing it as a practice. Practice looking around yourself and 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 thinking, this is all mind. And how does that feel? How does that shift your perception of your world? Doing it as a practice is really different. Um, sorry. There we are. Okay, one realizes that outer objects other than mind do not exist. Thus, what arises in the mind is the non-observation of outer objects. So then if there's nothing out there, what is this arising in my mind? <clears throat> it's, the, it's The way they say it is a little funny. It's the observation of not outer objects. And the translator here, here says the non-observation of outer objects. Or Rong Dorje says, if there's nothing apprehended, there's no apprehender either. Therefore, independence on the non-observation of objects. So realizing that we're not observing anything, that we're 
that we're not cognizing anything since the mind is just experiencing the mind there's actually no cognizance going on so realizing that there also arises non-observation of the apprehender as being cognizance <laughs> so then we realize that that our cognizance is not cognizing therefore it's not cognizance because it's only cognizance if it's cognizing and this is summed up nicely in the distinction between the uh, middle and the extremes by my trend dependence on observation non-observation arises just sort of skips to the conclusion independence sorry uh, not the conclusion these are the steps independence on non-observation non-observation arises therefore observation is established as the nature of non-observation <laughs> that's the shortcut that was a good one in this way if one realizes the basic state just as it is in which apprehended and apprehender do not exist then one realizes everything the dharmadatsu mayana sutra lamka says the mind is aware that nothing other than mind exists then it is realized that the mind does not exist either. The intelligent ones are aware that both do not exist and abide in the Dharma Dhatu in which these are absent. It's fascinating to see this, this scheme repeated over and over and over again in all these different sources. It's very cool. The cause and conditions of mistakenness are the eight collections of consciousness, which has a brief introduction that says, uh, He says that the dependent origination of the cause and conditions of this lies in the six collections mentation and the alia you may wonder if everything in samsara nirvana is explained as mine how is this the case first it is essential to know the cause and conditions of this samsara as well as the mode in which these two arise by virtue of dependent origination i.e. these two being samsara and nirvana. Therefore, the stainless sutras, tantras, and shastras say that this principle of mental cause and conditions lies in the six collections of consciousness, afflicted mentation, which is the seventh, and the alia. It's a little bit frustrating in that earlier the translator or the, the author said that the sixth consciousness was mentation on the top of page 274, that header explaining interdependence in terms of the sixth consciousness, mentation. So now they're using mentation as the seventh consciousness. It, it says afflicted mentation, so... Right. Identical. Uh, you'll see the afflicted mentation okay. is, is part of, is one half of the seventh. The alia functions as the causal condition, the underlying fabric that produces samsara, its result being the seven collections of consciousness. From that, all karmas and sufferings of the three realms ripen individually. The latent tendencies of these remaining in the alia, vijnana, consciousness, produce the further potentials of the alia consciousness. He's leaving out the word consciousness, but you have to understand it here. Therefore, the alia is also called the result of the seven collections of consciousness. It's the cause and the result. It gives rise to them and then carries their uh, momentum. The Vajrashikara Mahaguhya Yoga Tantra says, the alia from which all seeds rise is held to be the nature of everything internal and external. As a matter of course, 
as a matter of what does that mean as a matter of course is like means as common knowledge or something or anyway <clears throat> i want you to know the dependent when they say seven collections are they saying because the six collect into the seven like each one passes on to the next no they're calling each one a collection so he's referring to seven through one seven six five four three two one each one of them is a collection as a matter of course much to know the dependent origination of nirvana we study the buddha dharma a seemingly external condition by virtue of the power of the basic element that is the stainless dharmakaya interesting statement that we the buddha dharma is a seemingly external condition where the study of it is the study of the buddha dharma is a seemingly external condition by virtue of the power of the basic element the stainless dharmakaya is the uh the basis for that through that the progeny of knowing that the basic element of the dharmakaya exists within ourselves that it can be attained by ourselves and that it is endowed with great qualities will arise that progeny will arise and we will have confidence in that fact based on such confidence aspiration arises based on aspiration the vigor of engagement arises and relying on that we gather the two accumulations i.e. we uh, merit in wisdom meditation study and so forth consequently we become liberated from the defilements while the completely pure dharmakaya manifests as the Uttaratantra says, with devotion they aspire this inconceivable object exists. People like me, <clears throat> sort of a funny quote, people like me are able to attain it. Oh, sorry, they, they aspire. So uh, the text is saying, talking about people aspiring like bodhisattvas, this inconceivable object exists, i.e. enlightenment. People like me are able to attain it, and such attainment entails excellent qualities. It's a very good thing. Therefore, being vessels of all qualities such as striving, vigor, mindfulness, dhyana, and prajna. Uh, interesting categorization. The mind of enlightenment will be ever present in them. Since that mind is present all the time, the children of the victor do not fall back and reach the utter purity of the complete paramita of merit. The paramita of merit. That's cool. Striving and vigor as being different things. The detailed explanation has six parts, starting with the six collections and then proceeding to the immediate condition together with the afflicted mind, which together are the seventh consciousness and the then the eighth consciousness, the causal condition, Ali Vijnana. Uh, starting with the first, explaining the six collections has four parts, identifying the six goes as follows the consciousness of the six collections first if you wonder what the consciousness is of the six collections that appropriate apprehender and apprehended <laughs> appropriate apprehender and apprehended are they are the following the eye and so forth as we thought identifying the object condition dependent on their object condition these are the six uh, sorry depend on the object conditions these are the six objects of form sound smell taste and so forth it is impossible that these six consciousnesses are naturally established by their own nature uh, rather they arise in dependence on the four conditions being the uh, causal condition sorry the um 
yeah, the, um, the causal condition, the dominant condition, the object condition, and the immediately preceding condition. Uh, let's see. So first, they depend on their object conditions, which are the the sense the six sense objects. And since there are six objects, as the factors on which they depend, the consciousnesses, as the factors that depend on these are also six in number. What are these? They are lists of six that are known as the objects of reference, of form, and so on. Smell, taste, tangible objects, phenomena. Generally, in terms of the five skandhas, the sense faculties and their objects are included in the skanda of form. Generally, in terms of the five skandhas, the sense faculties and their objects are included in the skanda of form. Generally, interesting. Within that causal form, so there's two types of form, causal form and re resulting form. Causal form consists of the four great elements, the Mahabhutas, earth, water, fire, and wind, and resultant forms, which derives from those four elements and combinations, are taught as eleven in number. The ten that are the five sense faculties and the five objects, uh, in other words, the six minus the mental uh, sense faculty and objects, plus imperceptible form. A wonderful name for uh, something that you can perceive. Here in New York, the object conditions, just kidding, NY is the abbreviation of the name of this text in Tibetan, but it's also in New York. The object conditions are explained in the five sense objects, such as form as, this, as the object of the eyes and phenomena as the object of the mental consciousnesses. So the object of the mental consciousness are, is dharma phenomena. It's very all-embracing term. The presentation of their subdivisions appears in detail in the Treasury of Abhidharma by Basu Bandhu. Form is twofold and twentyfold. Not quite sure how we got to twenty, but sound is eight, taste is six, smell four, and tangible objects are of eleven types. If you're interested in your classifications and um, twentyfold, okay, somebody has to figure out what the twentyfolds are for form have to add that to our notes also or to our list for our resident scholar also the virtuous or unvirtuous continuities in those distracted or without mind which are outcomes of the great elements are called imperceptible which is a really con convoluted way of describing the form of vows hopefully the footnote describes that as for phenomena, one should know that they are twofold, conditioned and unconditioned, each having eight subcategories. Another one for our resident scholar, what are those subcategories? Hmm. Uh, there's also a presentation of the three unconditioned phenomena and so on. That's another variation. Uh, I mean, a further uh, detail on the uh, unconditioned. All of these should be known from other sources. He won't go into them here. The dominant condition of the six sense faculties, which possess form and are translucent. So the, uh, the sense faculties are made of subtle form. 
dominant conditions of the six consciousnesses are the unimpaired six sense faculties. The eye sense faculty is like a flax flower. You guys know your flowers, right? It's a blue flower with like, uh, I think, six flat petals. Very cute, pretty little flower. Um, the ear sense faculty is like a knot in the birch bark. <laughs> know your trees. Uh, the nose sense faculty is like parallel copper needles, like a bed of needles. And the tongue, tongue sex sense faculty, rather, is like the two halves of a split moon. That's a very odd one. It is explained that these four faculties exist within their corresponding sense organs, while the body sense faculty, which, of course, is like the skin of the, of the bird that is soft to the touch. Have you ever seen the skin of a bird, you know, without the, the feathers on it, like chickens or turkeys, you know, on Thanksgivingies, and it has little pimples where the feathers used to be, right? So it's soft, sort of clammy, um, and pervades the entire body. All of the five sense faculties possess form and are translucent. So these are subtle form, uh, giving rise to consciousness that is able to apprehend an object. How did, how did they know about these? They saw them with their uh, superior vision from that arose from the achievement of the, the uh, absorption states. Uh, possessing physical form refers to being made up of minute particles or arising from the four elements as their causes. Translucent means that just like a clear reflection in a mirror, the sense faculties are clear, vivid objects due to their own particular locations being occupied by other particles while at the same time appearing as something that is connected to consciousness. So these elusive entities, this subtle form that appears in in uh, the same space as uh, other particles of regular matter, and um, they're yet they're visible to those who can see them. <laughs> can I here, though? No, you can't. <laughs> we already like debunked the notion of form. So why does it rearise here? Oh, they never said that there's no forms. Where do they say that there's no forms? Did I make a mistake somewhere? Well, they used the term, even they used the term particle there somewhere. I thought that the notion, I mean, we have appearances, but. Isn't that what we're describing, appearances? Is that what they're talking about here? Because they're using, ter I mean, again, it's this, this question of terminology. What else is there? What else could they be describing? Well, when they say the this possessing physical form refers to being made up of minute particles, but I thought we had already dispensed with the notion that particles could exist. I just, I'm just trying to see where. Well, there, uh, there's no, uh, there's no <clears throat> substantially existent, irreducible, subtle particles, but, um, unreal, um, uh, non, not irreducible, subtle particles have as much existence as anything else as the eye and forms and, and smells and taste you know why do, why do the particles upset you when we went through f smells and tastes and all those things they didn't upset you um it, it wasn't they weren't clearly specifically utilizing i mean if, if you're thinking about those as part of consciousness 
I, I don't know. I mean, it just seems to me that they go back and forth between dispensing with particles and then bringing them back when it's sort of like convenient to talk about them for a while. And I, I you know, it's... Well, what are all these made out of is the question. Mind, presumably, or like... Yeah, right? yeah. So they're different types of mind. But, but, but I mean, in a sense, we, they're really not made out of anything. No, they just appear that way. Right. I, I, it's just, it's just. I just wanted to confirm because when they start talking about particles again here, it seems like that's bringing back a ghost, you know. But uh, all, all of it is a ghost. You know, okay. when he, when he went through the, the subtle forms of the senses, and when he. Well, um, I was going to mention it then too, but I. Just, I, I <laughs> Here, when they specifically use the word particle, I figured it was a good time to. Yeah. So this quiet. is the mind. This is the mind appearing as these things, and, and thereby serving as the dominant condition, i.e., the apprehended. But all of this is still mind. So at the end of this paragraph, he says, "All of these excellent." Uh, he says, um, "This okay. connection is yes, ma'am." Isn't isn't he just explaining the system of the sotrantikas? I mean. This is the foundational system, isn't it? How the dominant can all these conditions the dominant. You have condition. a you have a beeping. Oh, it stopped. Um, well, he's saying this is towards the end. He says this connection is explained as one of being connected by virtue of. Uh, sorry, um, in the Mahayana Samgraha, it's held that the apprehended part of the Ali is what appears as the five sense faculties. So all of this is just Alia, which is not the Sautrantika explanation. He's giving the Yogacara explanation, which is that um, the mind appears in all these different ways. But but some of these terms are, are sort of oh, yeah, it's, carried it's totally, over and borrowed from foundational yeah. systems, right? Yeah, they're so, very they're very helpful descriptive terms so for it, appearing. But it can get a little confusing because, like what Cynthia was saying, if you're borrowing these terms and and the way of looking at these things from a, the earlier systems to sort of wrap the whole mind-only thing into that somehow, so it 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 kind of bends your mind <laughs> bends your mind. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. So it's helpful to keep remembering he's describing the mind appearing as as objects, as the apprehended. It's the Alia appearing in these different ways, such as um, particles and sounds, smells, tastes, and all sorts of things. So then the next paragraph asks for the mental faculty it is explained as the immediate mind, which is the arising and ceasing within the Aliya Vishnana and has the Datu of mentation. So it's the uh, uh, the uh, realm of the coming together of the subject object and consciousness of mentation, which is either one of all six, which is either one or any one, either one, it should say, which is any one of all six consciousnesses having just ceased. I don't understand either, I think. 
which is any one of the six consciousnesses just having ceased as the Datu of mentation. But again, it's, it's a little bit vague whether he's talking about the sixth or the seventh consciousness, because here it seems to be the seventh, because the six have just uh, ceased. It's also explained as a particular one among the potentials of the Ali Vijnana and so on. However, the meaning of this is that what functions as the gateway for the arising of the mental consciousness is suitable as the Aitana of, of mentation, which is basically just like quibbling over what to call the seventh, the uh, Aitana of the seventh consciousness. Because it and the ayatana of conditioned unconditioned phenomena independently originate as interrelated subject and object. Um, yeah, I don't know, just sort of convoluted way of describing the the uh, the apprehended object quality of the seventh consciousness. So, what do these arise from? Both arise from the mind. Both, um, both being, uh, I believe, the let's see, the consciousness of the sixth collections, um, if you if you read the the root verse, you could just be right? talking about subject and object, right? I think. Both refers to object conditions and dominant conditions. And object conditions are the uh, supposed outer, are the objects of our cognition, and the dominant are the perceivers. So apprehended and, and apprehended and apprehender are the both arise from mind. <clears throat> what vividly appears as objects and sense faculties, those, those are the both, is based on beginningless potentials. Where did the beginningless potentials begin? Well, they're beginningless. Consciousness is what perceives objects. That's interesting. That's the definition. While the formations of mental factors perceive their features. This is the definitions of what the difference between mind and mental factors is. Mind in the sense of consciousness, like uh, the primary mind such as one of the six consciousnesses is what perceives the entityness of objects or the projected supposed entityness of objects while the mental factors perceive their different features. So the mental factors are the 51 mental factors. Um, let's see. Both arise from the mind. What vividly appears as objects and sense faculties is based on beginningless potentials. In the Ali Vijnana, consciousness is what it perceives objects, while the formations of mental factors perceive their features, which is based on the mental consciousness. So the, uh, I guess the features are based on the mental consciousness. That's a little awkward. Well, hopefully he'll explain it. In this way, the sense, six sense faculties and objects, apprehender and apprehended, both only arise from the mind but are not established um, ultimately, you may wonder, well, then what are all these appearances, which is what Cynthia just asked, you know, why are we talking about particles and stuff? I thought we'd dispense with it. 
what vividly appears as external objects and in inner sense faculties as follows under the sway of ignorance since earlier today uh, sorry since beginningless time we think that the non-existence of the duality of apprehender and apprehended exists as such a duality the non-existence of the duality <laughs> what a convoluted statement we think that the non-existence of the duality of apprehender and apprehended exists okay talk about stopping your mind that's a good one <laughs> totally got me the seeds of the no, I think there's just a double a, negative or something. Well, non-existence of a duality means that it's non-dual. Right. And, and so it, he's just saying that we think what isn't real or doesn't exist exists. It's just a... It, thank you. But we think that what is not a duality is a duality. <laughs> right. It's one of the what rare a, times What a with, funny way to like, say something. Oh, yeah. my God. The seeds of the latent tendencies of such convoluted way of speaking, sorry, mistaken thinking, are then input into the alia consciousness, like data into a computer, and the six sense, uh, sorry, and the sense faculties and objects appear based on the awakening of the potentials. They're woken up, boom, they up subject objects manifest for the five consciousness, such as the eye, that perceive so-called external objects. Why does he say external objects? Um, sorry. Uh, for the five consciousness, such as the eye consciousness, that perceive external objects, form, sound, smells, taste, tangible objects appear, but these consciousness do not cognize the distinctive features of those external objects, which are not external objects, hello, such as thinking this is a pillar, this is a vase, pillars and vases, for the Holy Scriptures say the eye consciousness is consciousness cognizes blue but it does not think this is blue it just it just cognizes it while the the implication is that the mental factors think this is blue or this is making me feel blue consequently first objects appear to the sense consciousnesses while what cognizes their features is the mental factor of discrimination which is one of the 51. Therefore, among the mental factors, is discrimination defined as what apprehends the characteristic of objects that thinks this form is beautiful or ugly or pleasant or unpleasant. Discriminations such as these arise based on the mental consciousness. So here consciousness is the scene of an object while mental factors are its distinctive features regarding the circumstance which this mental consciousness does not arise. Master Vasubandhu says in his Trimshikakarika, the mental consciousness always occurs always except in those without discrimination. So there are states. So um, this is an odd section where he's like just going through a list of of. Uh, types of phenomena going through like the chart of dharmas talked about the six collections of consciousness and uh, now he's going through the 51 mental factors and pointing out this nuance of uh, there being states in which there are not certain mental factors so um, in the two kinds of mental absorption 
of cysts. I think it's uh, naturally produced and produced by analysis. There's a state without discrimination. Also in deep sleep, fainting, and the state without mind, there's uh, no discrimination. I guess the state without mind is uh, neither perception nor non-perception, the fourth infinity. But anyway, I want you to know that these are said to be the circumstances in which the mental consciousness does not arise, since in those five circumstances the mental consciousness merges temporarily into the alia, so that there is no clear focus on phenomena. Interesting. So there are states of mind where we sink into the alia vijnana, I guess is his point. Not quite sure what his point is here. Maybe he'll get to the point soon. Explaining the immediate condition together with the afflicted mind. Brief introduction by way of their names. Mentation is twofold, the immediate and the afflicted mind. Things are, things are getting exciting. We're building up to a, to a crescendo here. Um, mentation is twofold, the immediate and the afflicted. You may wonder. In case you're still paying any attention at all, you might wonder <clears throat> what the immediate condition is, which is explained as one among the four conditions for the arising and ceasing of the six collections of consciousness. He's gone on endlessly about the causal condition, the dominant condition, and the object condition, but not the immediate condition. Finally, so some assert it to be a part of the sixth consciousness. Uh, mentation, here he's calling the sixth mentation, and some assert that it does not exist actually. However, these people base themselves just on the presentation of the Shravakas, who assert only six collections of consciousness, but simply have no idea about the Mahayana system of asserting eight collections of consciousness. For that reason, the mentation that rests in the Ali is said to have two facets existing as the two that are the so-called immediate mind and the afflicted mind. The detailed explanation of their defining characteristics, the first, the immediate mind due to being the condition for the arising and ceasing of the six consciousnesses, it is the immediate condition. Uh, traditionally, the immediate condition, immediately preceding condition of, of a... Um, uh, phenomena of matter is the uh, immediately preceding uh, moment of that matter of the of the same causal continuum, which is a convoluted way of saying the thing in the moment before. And then, in terms of mind, it's whatever consciousness just ceased serves as the immediately preceding condition for this moment of consciousness to uh, arise, which is just like this expedient way of explaining like how does consciousness come about, uh, upon what basis there's the causal condition, the uh, object and the dominant conditions, and then there's some, it, some moment before that acts as a karmic momentum that impacts this moment. Due to the condition for the arise and ceasing of six consciousnesses, it is the immediate condition. Matching the number of the arising and ceasing in the moments of the six collections, the immediate mind is connected with them. So for every moment of six, of any of, the, of there uh, being a, a, a cognition or consciousness of a sixth conscious, of any of the six consciousnesses, there is a corresponding uh, 
immediate condition for each one. By virtue of a mind immersed in yoga and the words of the victor, this is realized to be true. So this is what arises based on uh, direct perception uh, in the meditative state of uh, yogic direct perception. As for what is called a media mind, whenever the six collections of consciousness arise, it functions as the condition for their immediate arising. It being the immediate mind functions as the condition for the arising of the six collections. And whenever the six collections ceases, it functions as the condition for immediately planting the seeds that are potential to these six collections into the alia. So after the ceasing of any moment of any of the six consciousnesses, there's some thing, so to speak, that then deposits the momentum of that particular moment of consciousness into the Ali of Vishnana. Uh, sort of goes to the bank and deposits, you know, the momentum of the prior moment, and that's called the immediate mind. Due to this, it is the immediate condition for both the arising and ceasing of the six consciousnesses. And when the six collections cease, this immediate consciousness, which is explained to be the same as the Dhatu of mentation, Dhatu, I guess, referring to the triad of subject, object, and consciousness, transports them telepathically, presumably into the Ali Vishnana. Immediately upon that, just like the condition of waves emerging from water from the Ali Vishnana that consists of all seeds, the mentation that rests in the Ali stirs again and operates. It, it lives. Through this, the immediate mind comes about when a single conditional instance of the six collections arises. A single instance of the immediate mind arises too, but not a second one. It's always one-to-one, -one. quantifiably so, one moment of each, and moments are always of the same duration. If there are many such conditioned instances, then the same number of instances of the immediate mind will arise. Therefore, since the earlier instances of the six collections have ceased, the following conditional instances are triggered immediately, thus being immediate, consequently by matching the number of moments of the immediate mind, causing the arising and ceasing of the moments of the six collections, it arises in a way that it is connected with them by equaling their number. Sort of makes you appreciate the prasangika system of just saying <laughs> all of this is. <laughs> Sorry, Henrietta. I was going to ask. I mean, so again, this confusion arises for me. Like it's he's describing the it, relative world. He's describing right. The I mean, he's not saying these moments truly exist. So correct. Yeah. Nor is he saying they. Nor is he saying that they exist separate from the mind, the uh, alia. Right, but they're he's really... willing to go through this whole explanation. Yeah. In order to refute it. Well, we'll see. I don't want to give away the punchline. <laughs> okay. I think it, it's it's partly so that we understand how what's happening moment to moment in our minds. Well, yeah, it's helpful, but but. It would be it would be help more helpful if he would keep reminding us. Well, all of this is it's just mind, but yeah. But I think he'll come back to that. 
Uh, if you wonder from which source of such a principle is known, this immediate mind is realized by virtue of the direct perception of a mind immersed in the yoga of the unity of shamatha and vipassana, and through inference based on the principles presented in the profound and vast words of Victor. The afflicted mind, the other part of this, i.e. the seventh consciousness with regard to mind as such, entails self-centeredness, holding on to pride, attachment to me, and ignorance. In other words, me. Since it produces all views about the perishing collection, the perishing collection. We have the collections of consciousness, and now we have the perishing collection. It's a very rare collection, and uh, it's being put on auction this weekend at Sotheby's, the perishing collection. It's called the afflicted mind. The part of this immediate mind that is known as the afflicted mind operates by being based on the Aliyah of Vishnana. Through not realizing mind is such free from stains, and it said focusing on the Aliyah, Mind is such with stains, it entails self-centeredness, holding on to pride, thinking, I am the best, clinging in attachment to me, cherishing oneself more than others, and ignorance due to not understanding that this very I lacks any reality. Thus the afflicted mind is always tainted with these four afflictions, therefore it clings to the basis that consists of the five skandhas, the collection that when analyzed cannot stand its ground, but perishes as being mine to the self as possessing the skandhas, to the self as abiding in the five skandhas, and to the five skandhas as arising from the self. Therefore, by applying each of these four assumptions to each of the five skandhas, there are 20 mistaken views about a real personality. Do you get the math there? Four mistaken views, five skandhas is 20 mistaken views about a real personality through wrongly engaging in each one of these 20 views in the past, present, and future. Presto changeo, 20 times 3 gives us 60. And by adding the general clinging to the self as being permanent or becoming extinct after death, one arrives, one arrives at the famous number of 62 mistaken views about the self, which is uh, presented by the, the Buddha in various texts. Since it produces all these views, it is called the afflicted mind. Vasubandhu says, what operates based on the Ali consciousness is the consciousness called mentation, which has as its focal, which has it, uh, meaning the Ali Vishnana has its focal object, its nature being self-centeredness. It is always associated with the four afflictions and obscured yet neutral. It's not like tainted one way or another. It has the possibility of uh, being redeemed. Since this is the locus of the afflictedness of consciousness, this afflicted mind lacks any valid cognition. And, and the fact that it's like neutral and afflicted is a very deep fact that we're going to have to come back to some other time. Um, this afflicted mind lacks any valid cognition and gives rise to all minds that are non-valid cognitions. So it's mistaken. Since this is the locus of the afflictedness of consciousness, this afflicted mind lacks any valid cognition. It gives rise to all minds that are non-valid because it obscures the alley of Vijnana through latent tendencies while its nature is neutral. It is, the, it is the root of the entirety of the imaginary nature and the afflictions. Consequently, it is also explained as false imagination. From this, the internally oriented afflictions, the factors to be relinquished through 
familiarization arise. So this this is the first uh, wave of the arising of samsara from Ali Vishnana by virtue of this condition also staining the six collections of consciousness, the externally oriented afflictions, the factors to be relinquished through seeing arise. The externally oriented afflictions, the factors to be relinquished through seeing means the path of seeing arise. The externally oriented afflictions. There is no external, but again, he's talking as if there is. And let's see, we're almost, uh, okay summarizing the characteristics of both the mentation immediately after the ceasing of the sixth consciousness is the locus of the arising of consciousness of the next moment the afflicted mind is the locus of affliction since it has the capacity to produce an obscure this mentation has two aspects so every moment of uh, in between the sixth sense consciousness is there's this immediate mind and it has uh, two aspects it has this aspect of afflicted mind, but it also has the aspect of being immediate mind. I, 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 you know, is the afflicted mind also the immediate mind? I guess it has these two options. It, it could be immediate or it could be afflicted. But uh, let's see, summarizing the characteristics of these, those two types of mentation. The mentation immediately after the rising of six consciousnesses by their merging into the alia is the place, the locus or connector that causes the rising of the following moment of six, of any of the six consciousnesses. The afflicted mind is the locus of the six collections being made afflicted. So sometimes, or more likely all the time in my case, it is afflicted. Since the immediate mind has the capacity to produce the six collections, while the afflicted mind has the capacity to immediately obscure them effectively and completely, this mentation in general with dress and the all is classified into two aspects. When the immediate mind produces a purified instance of consciousness, once in a blue moon, such as confidence in the Dharma, or in the spiritual friend, the afflicted mind does not stir. Therefore, the immediate mind is called the stainless mentation in the sutras. So it's sort of like the immediate mind can go two ways. It can go afflicted or stainless. The meaning of what these say, of what these words, I guess, say is well, taught. In aren't the, they actually saying they call it the immediate mind when it's stainless? That, is what, they're, that is what they're saying. I'm extrapolating from there. But that is, yes, that is what they're saying, that the this immediate mind is therefore called the stainless. Uh, among those, mentation is twofold, since it is the support that acts as the immediate condition. The mentation, which is any consciousness that has just ceased, is the support for the arising of the next consciousness. The second is the afflicted mind, which is always congruently associated with the four afflictions of the views about a real personality. One, self-conceit. Two, attachment to a self. Three, and ignorance. Four, this is the support for the afflictedness of all conscious, of any consciousness. Thus, consciousness is produced by virtue of the first aspect of mentation as its support, while the second one makes it afflicted. Mentation is a consciousness because it cognizes objects since it is both immediately preceding and self-centered, Mentation has these two aspects on top of 286. As for the afflicted, 
As for afflicted and afflicted mind is the word for grasping at me. For this reason is the root of all the mistakenness of circling in the three realms. Therefore, this afflicted mind neither exists in the meditative absorption of trans cessation that transcends the three realms, nor in the meditative equipoise, poises, poises, poses, poises, <laughs> of noble arhats and bodhisattvas. You should also know the distinctive feature of the afflicted mind still existing in the meditative absorption without discrimination, the third option. So the the next section is the Aliyah Vijnana, which I will, we will have to leave for next time. So next time, ideally, we'll run through the Aliyah Vijnana and the five wisdoms and the conclusion and celebrate bring your bring your refreshments so let's all try to remember top of page 286 okay any comments final comments questions or thoughts or suggestions complaints complaints why is he going through all this please refer all complaints to emily <laughs> what page did we end on Page 286. <laughs> okay. <sighs> uh, I, I have one little thing that popped in my mind when reading as this. As long as it's little, okay. Well, it's not even... How could, how could you measure whether it's little or big <laughs> if it's in your mind? <laughs> my mind it's like is a little. little thought. It's, it's my mind thought. that's little. That's oh, <laughs> you shouldn't be little yourself. But so what occurred to me about this uh, two aspects is that does this mean that we always have a choice in every moment? That is the the implication, and he he doesn't really harp on that, but that that is the implication, and, and uh, certain people harp on that, and in terms of uh, the use of sense perceptions in the Vajrayana, this is their their uh, rationale, mm -hmm. their mm -hmm. evidence, or whatever, their support. Okay. <clears throat> that sort but of thing. Is yeah. also essentially when we talk about co-emergence, that that's where that opportunity of co-emergence it does is. It does seem like that co-emergence is talking about this. But uh, co-emergence is a naughty subject because um, co-emergence is explained as not being the emergence of two separate things and it is uh, translated in different ways by other people in order to bring that out right uh, it's a conate right but is it i mean essentially this is sort of the place the well it's not really wisdom the stainless mind is not really wisdom it's certain the afflicted is certainly ignorance but the stainless is not yet wisdom it's it's the seed of the path and i guess we'll it's the yeah, I, I don't know whether it's, it's, I guess this is just maybe the opportunity to be eliminating your seeds and your karma. Is that more of what it is? Not, it is. Not it is. You should cultivate the stainless aspect of your seventh consciousness. Definitely. Definitely. We should all be doing that. Whereas co-emergence, I mean, essentially the co-emergence would be not even going into consciousness at all. Is that more... Well, I'm not quite sure what you mean by co-emergence. Well, I, I mean that yeah, there, that there's a sort of a more ultimate 
experience. This is really more still all operating within the consciousness. I guess that's that's all. I the co-emergence is the one taste of the absence of duality, of the duality of the apprehender and the apprehended. Right, which means you're already outside of consciousness, right? There's no you to be outside of anything. Correct. That, that You're not going to get a serious answer from me one way or another. Gotcha. <laughs> it's too late. I don't know. Eric, do you have anything to add to this? Can you help me out at all? No? Anyone? I'm not here. <laughs> Who's not here? <laughs> Dave's not here. Dave, Dave's not here. <laughs> Remember Dave? Remember that one? Yes. <laughs> Dave's not here. That's good. That's good. How can you be in some place at all? If you're, How can you be in two places when you're nowhere at all or something like that? Anyway, we should uh, dedicate and conclude. It's too much fun. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the regent's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy a profound, brilliant glory. Thank you very much good to see you and have a great week has anybody here got covid yet it's not amazing none of us have got it four eight twelve thirteen people one out of thirteen nobody has got it yet that's great keep it up okay because i never leave the screen (laughs) we just live in this little box (laughs) i I just sit around my house and meditate and tinker with things i don't go out yeah i I went to florida i went visit my mom last week i don't know i'm waiting for it to hit so we'll see pretty shocking like even like within our little Dela group which had been totally clear of it suddenly somebody and their whole family got it so it's it's definitely rare it's 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 probably it's rare a for a specter lurking is a specter haunting i mean yeah. rare that we don't have it yes it is odd that, that none of us yeah it's statistically impossible basically so, somebody so derek, must have it you haven't had it derek not that I know of. Jane had it, right? But uh, I I don't know that I ever had it. I don't know. Maybe I'll get it yet. I was just in Florida. So that's where that's where they, they grow it, right? Don't they? It's like free. Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing you didn't catch it back when she had it. I mean, unless it just means that you must have, that you somehow, you know. Got a mild case and didn't A mild realize. case and got through it, which, but at that yeah. time, that's pretty stunning. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, me and you Thank all you. still not have it. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>